And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Greetings and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Mike Trout is coffee. At Starbucks with a double latte, skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. (laughs) Welcome to this edition of Starkville. We're in the dog days of summer, mid-August. And uh, it is just me, solo flying here. I am John Oates without Daryl Hall this week. Uh, Jason, we'll miss you. Enjoy your vacation. Well-deserved. I will hold it down. And because so much happened this week, uh, there's so much to get to. I'm very excited about this show. We're going to have the incredible Marley Rivera joining us today. And she has so much insight about all the time she spent covering the Yankees. We crossed paths many times outside of ESPN, but also the fact that I played in Puerto Rico. So excited to hear her story and and her journey. And, you know, I just wanted to kick off things, something that is near and dear to my colleague, Jason Stark's heart. And that is the Field of Dreams. We had the Field of Dreams game and the Chicago Cubs knocked off the Chicago uh, Cincinnati Reds. I don't know what they call red stockings. We're not sure. But uh, four to two in Iowa. And the thing is, Obviously, we know a lot about this game from last year and how MLB has done a great job of capturing the nostalgia and what this movie and this scene has meant to so many baseball fans. But I think the connection that I draw so closely is Iowa, the Iowa fans. And I played two years or two seasons in, in Des Moines, Iowa for the Iowa Cubs. And, you know, they are some of the greatest fans. So it was great to see that they were able to come in, in almost their home marketplace and see their team because they watched so many players like myself come through AAA and they were incredibly supportive packed house every night Sec Taylor Stadium and uh, I always remembered fondly just how incredibly supportive those fans were over the years so that was exciting for me to see I even been to many Iowa State fairs I mean I, I dove in when I was in Iowa and and so that game brought it to life again and uh, once again a, a great job of of capturing I'm hoping MLB will expand into other Movies, MLB, you know, Bull Durham. Come on now. One of my favorites, probably my favorite baseball movie of all time. I know many of you agree out there, but I'm looking forward to the next chapter. Uh, But also, I did have a special moment that would be indicative of what we do here at Starkville, and that is elevate the ridiculous, elevate the absurd and the minuscule, and we bring it in its royal, all its royalty onto the throne of Starkville. And that's what we do here at Starkville. So without further ado, I wanted to mention that I was calling the Red Sox-Yankees game in Boston. 
And sure enough, I, I saw the transactions and I saw Lou Trevino over there. And I said, wait a minute, he's, an, he's a Yankee. And you know who else is a Yankee? Jose Trevino. So is it possible that Trevino could throw to Trevino? I wanted to know. And inquiring minds did want to know. And they got their wish. And so did I. So I got to call a game where Trevino threw to Trevino. And that tilde over the end, we're going to talk about that with Marley Rivera a little bit. It's a little confusing, but, it, you know, I want to understand a little bit more. Uh, Trevino versus Trevino. So that, that was historic. And I just wanted to mention that off the top just because I don't want it to get lost in the shuffle. Uh, so, but moving to a more serious side of the note, which as serious as we can be at Starkville, once in a while we have to dive in. And it's hard to talk about any baseball this week without considering the effects of Fernando Tatis Jr. and what transpired with his 80-game suspension. That's a lot of games. And, you know, I remember doing a lot of work on the drug policy uh, after many iterations failed to realize that there's a lot of teeth in this policy when it comes to the amount of games you can lose. And, you know, I think the first thing I thought about when I heard the news, and it was, I got an alert on my phone, was it was a kind of a mini devastation if there's a such thing. And the thing that I was holding close to me about Tatis Jr., and, and really many of these young players, and thankfully he's not the only one, was the fact that I see him as a transformational figure. Because there's something you could circle around Fernando Tatis Jr. about the time he's come into the game and then what he's brought as a young player. You know, I come from a generation of players where you were kind of seen but not heard when you were a young player. And not only, you know, were you denied like the cultural impact of what youth can provide to any team, but you were just in silence. And that was the culture. And that exists in many other facets of what we do. But to see a young player be able to come on and be himself, like Jimmy Rollins was kind of rookie 2.0, but Tatis Jr. was rookie 3.0. You know, he brought this ability to have swagger right out of the gate. And the truth is many of these young players are contributing right away. They're, they're already productive major leaguers. There's no more like, oh, let's just wait and cure them. and all. Let's, No, no they're, they're ready and they're dominant. And I think the transformational part, not only the talent level, the ability, the production, the, the advanced metrics, all these things, but the way he embraced ambassadorship, knowing his dad and playing in that era as well, uh, that's hard to do as a young player. And there's a lot of responsibility that comes with, and clearly he's felt some of that weight. But on top of that is, you look at the areas by which he did transform things, one of which is the cultural side. And where I appreciate this is playing in Puerto Rico, winter ball, two years, opened my eyes to a whole lot of things. And even though my dad was from an island in Trinidad, I understood the celebratory nature. I got to see baseball in a very different light. And that was watching the celebration. We had bands, we had dancers and music and you were supposed to enjoy the joy all the time. And we won the championship that year. And the biggest thing we did was going to the stage in Mayaguez in the Palacios and dancing with like all these amazing bands from across the country. I mean, we were celebrated. And that was what you did during the games all through the season. It was just a big party. And why not? You're playing baseball. So I think that I started to understand it differently about how this was not translating over into Major League Baseball at the time. And you were, we were missing something. And given Major League Baseball is almost 30% uh, Latino, you're thinking that that's a tremendous cultural loss when you're not embracing players 
uh, in their domains of where they've contributed so much to our game uh, and b- way beyond just athletes as contributors, social change, all the ways that uh, our game has been shaped by just its international component. So I realized that Tatis Jr. was bringing out a lot of what I saw in winter ball and the celebration, but he did it in a way that was accept- it was accepted. And that's, that's hard to do. His timing was right. Maybe there was other young players, Acuna Jr. and so on, but he, had, he took it to another level of acceptance. And, and I think the word acceptance sometimes makes me think that it's got to be more than that. You know, you're not just tolerated here. You are a driver of the culture, and you should be because not only are you well-represented, but you matter because it's not just about the players. It's about the fans. And you want this game to appeal to everyone, every walk of life. That's what he was doing. But the other thing that made me think about the power of Tatis Jr. was the fact that when you look at collective bargaining, there was a, an effort by veteran players to speak out on behalf of young players that were talented and productive and deserve to get paid, not in the future, not after arbitration, but right away. And I never saw that moment of veteran players fighting for the financial future of young players to get that money right away. That was unheard of. And Tatis Jr., I think, is part of the reason why that was accepted. You, you have these young players, Sotos of the world, that were coming in and producing, and not only that, but also becoming the face of the team, the organization, the game. And veteran players realized that, and they accepted it. They didn't fight it. They didn't push back. So you saw them talking about the joy Tatis Jr. brings. He's one of the most exciting players of the game. But you heard that from players who are 35 and up. And you also heard that about when they were negotiating why it was important that these young players get paid. Well, back in my day, they were like, no, wait your turn, pay your dues. I get that. But this is a different day. And I have to say, Fernando Tatis Jr. was part of the reason why. And that's why it's so devastating. That's why it's so devastating. Outside of the fans and the young fans, I sit here and think just, out, you know, I, don't, I know Freddie Freeman a little bit. I definitely know him. Like, hello, how you doing? We, we know We've, we've exchanged words, but I think of Freddie Freeman and I think of his son. His son, who loved Fernando Tatis Jr. And you remember, like, he told Freddie, hey, Freddie, you know, you got you to gotta play better, Dad. You got to play better. You're not going to make the All-Star team. And if you make the All-Star team, I get to meet Fernando Tatis Jr. That, that was a cool story about how Charlie, it was Charlie, right? His name, Charlie Freeman, wanted to meet Tatis Jr. So he needed his dad to play better. I mean, that, that's transformational. That's the type of figure you have where he's the all-star of all-stars. Um, and that light was so bright. So, yes, there's so much we don't know and we will probably never know about what happened exactly with this suspension. You know, the, there's all the privacy questions, all the things. But what we do know is that he's not going to play for 80, 80 games. And that takes you into 2023. And, you know, you, you see Padres players, they're crestfallen as they should be and disappointed because – they make all these moves to get Juan Soto, and then you could add Tatis Jr. at the trade deadline. That's like adding Babe Ruth at the trade deadline. Just like the Mets added Jacob deGrom by just being healthy. That changes everything. And now it's gone. You know, so I'm looking forward to talking more about this with Marley Rivera, our guest. Uh, I think she will add tremendous insight. And, uh, and I think trying to understand with patience what is really beyond this story than what we know today. I think a lot will unfold. I, I think it is important to be patient, but at the same time, 
you know, as a player who played in the steroid era, I know the disappointment and frustration and anger and all the things that come with it. And you are always hoping we're moving past this. And, um, and so it's still an aspect of our game. We're still learning more about, you know, all the things that players either do to get around it or just do in sometimes in innocence maybe or just ignorance and end up causing ramifications that you can't really change. You can't put back. Because when you lose that trust, you lose a lot, and it's very hard to bring back. So um, without further ado, I want to talk a little bit more to our next guest about Fernando Tatis Jr. and more with Marley Rivera. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed Internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome in Marley Rivera, first time visitor to Starkville, uh, albeit without Jason Stark. He's on vacation, but you know, we won't hold that completely against him that he's missing the queen herself, Marley Rivera. <laughs> and, um, but Marley, yeah, thanks so much uh, for joining us here. No, thank you for having me. I've been I've been trying to get in line for this podcast. You guys are so popular that it's like this really long line. And of course, you know, I, I wasn't big up big enough on a, of a guest for Mr. Stark and Lisa Stark, but it's okay. You know, we'll get him back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we think of it as like a revolving door. You get on, you go back out, and you just keep going around in the circles of all our minutia that we keep everybody in. So, uh, yeah, I, I keep you know lobbying to have a map of Starkville. And uh, I think we, we have to design it because we, we keep adding buildings and I, I don't know how big this place is, but and statues. We're very big on statues. So uh, everybody who comes on, it's like Monument Park. So welcome. Welcome to Monument Park. <laughs> <laughs> this is fantastic. I love it. I already love it at Starkville. This is great. <laughs> so, so Marley, look, it's been so fantastic to, to work with you. Mm. And uh, I, I'm a fan, absolutely, and mm. um, always admired you know, your perspective, your insight, your focus, and just what you bring. And I think, I guess, you know, just for the listeners, it's, you know, would love to know about your journey. You know, you want to always want to know, like, how did you fall in love with baseball? How did you start with baseball? You know, where does that come from? Well, I think, and, and especially you understand this, having, you know, knowing Puerto Rico so well and the passion that we have in Puerto Rico and being born in Puerto Rico, you're born into baseball. And I born, and I was born, and this is the moment where we date ourselves. Mm-hmm. I was born a couple of years right after Roberto Clemente died. So I actually was born under that cloud of this incredible figure, the first Latino in the Baseball Hall of Fame that I never knew, that I never got to see play. I always heard this lore, right, growing up of number 21 for the Pittsburgh Pirates and, and that right field and that tip of the cap with uh, the 3,000 hit and, and that mythical moment where this plane goes down and him bringing aid uh, to Central America due to an earthquake, 
but I never knew who he was. And, and you sort of, it's instilled in you since you were a child, and I'm obviously in my mid forties, that, um, that this was a hero of my country. It was one of the, it's almost really hard to explain, like the way that Americans grow up knowing certain political po political figures, you know, in, in the names of, I don't know, George Washington, Martin Luther King Jr., right? Like this, you know, just really seminal figures in history. Like I learned of Roberto Clemente as one of those figures, you know, in, in his in Puerto Rican history, because he was just such a significant uh, part of my childhood. So you almost, you're born into baseball, you know, especially when I was born and, and I grew up in a family, I have four brothers and I, and I grew up surrounded by baseball and, and everyone played baseball. And I grew up with this incredible jealousy of why all these guys got to be on the field doing this thing that, that I obviously loved and would have loved to do too. So I think that that's sort of uh, where the passion grew and whatever, but it, it totally comes from, from the place I was born. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, I mean, Puerto Rico yeah. was, I, and it's an understatement to say how transformational that was for my career. But beyond that, you know, it was so much bigger than being on the field. It was just being welcomed as family. And the day yes. I got there, you know, they called me <laughs> alcalde because I'd go on the Fiesta Patronales, right? I'd travel around and I'd just, I'd speak Spanish the best I could in the, in the, in the central plaza. And people yeah. were like, yeah, wow, you're pretty bold. You know, I'd just go out there and just talk and, uh, yeah. After a while, just going to the mall every day, talking to people, you know, it was just like... It's I hard to explain, them. right, the love that yeah. people used to have for baseball. It has truly changed, unfortunately. Yeah. Not the passion for baseball, that's still there. But obviously, our league is greatly, greatly diminished. And, and there's a true financial ruin that has happened to the Puerto Rican League that is very sad for all of us who grew up, you know, like you did, playing in, you know, in really the golden era of, of local baseball. So So the passion that we have in Puerto Rico is really... Priceless. So you, as a baseball player, I'm sure people were like, "Please come on in," you know. Yeah, yeah it was it was <laughs> it was magical, and and we had a great team. Um, we won a championship one year, and and so I, I I definitely connect to that. So I'm curious, like going from that transition to saying, "All right, I want to comment on baseball." You know, mm, right, yeah. I'm not I'm not playing, and <laughs> and there's a lot of inequity in that that yes. that statement, but I am able to still connect in this way. How did that transition happen? I have a, a very unusual path, which is not, you know, kind of the typical, you have, you know, not a typical path because you obviously do not, but you do have kind of like the standard, you were a professional player, you dedicated your time to the league, right? And then you pursued writing and journalism. And that's, that's where you are, where you are now, right? Like this is the path that you did. Mine was not as linear as maybe a lot of the journalists have. I, I grew up, you know, as an immigrant were, as you well know too, Doug, and, and a lot of people who are listening to this out there, there's only so many jobs that are acceptable in immigrant families. There isn't, you know, there isn't a moment where you can say, I want to be a journalist or I want to be a baseball commentator or analyst that they don't laugh in your face. And particularly being a woman in, in a Latin American and a very traditional, uh, traditional gender roles culture that I, that I grew up in that was really frowned upon. So I had, you know, to, to wrap a very long story uh, short, an entirely different background. I was going to go to medical school. I was this really super smart kid, and that's what I wanted to do. And I and I was on that career path till my early twenties, until I was miserable. I mean, and it really became that point when I knew that that wasn't what I what I was going to do with my life. Even though that's sort of the path that everyone wanted me to follow. And um, and and as the child of immigrants, it was extremely hard to make that choice. 
to go into, you know, the passion that I had for baseball and, and finally seeing in my early twenties that, you know, people like Claire Smith and people, you know, like Susan Wallman who, who were doing what I dreamt of doing when such few women were doing it. So I feel that seeing those women, you know, kind of pave that path and, you know, particularly in the 1980s and 90s and, and seeing that happen was seminal for me. Like that was really to see where maybe there is a possibility for a woman with a career in baseball. And then I started to pursue it as a freelance writer in my early 20s and then developing to my day, you know, at ESPN now. So And so what was the sort of moment where, you know, you sort of had that, okay, this, this opportunity <laughs> is here. You mentioned freelancing. Yeah. And it was like, you know, how did that opportunity, that sort of initial door kicking down? Yeah. Uh, well, that happen? for me, for me, it was, we all have, you know, we don't accomplish and we don't get anywhere alone. Right. And there's a lot of people that prop you up and help you. And this is one of those things, right. That we have all developed our tribe and, as we've gone through, especially in sports journalism, which is a very, very difficult place for Latina women. And, and it really is. And I'm, I, I, this is, I want to be sure because when I listen to, to women sometimes talk about the business, I feel a little bit, I feel it's hard to explain. I feel offended. I don't want to be like, I, I don't want anyone to be here like, whoa, me, because I, I'm really not complaining about my life. I have a fabulous life. I am so blessed. I've worked so hard to get to where I am and I have reaped the benefits of hard work. And not a lot of people can say that, right? I have worked very hard and reaped the benefits of it. So I never want to sound whiny. So I, I really want to be careful with that. But the struggles of the image that Latina women have in sports are very, very difficult for me and, and, and continue to be because of the way that a lot of Latin women who cover sports dress or the way that Latin women are perceived by Latin players and the expectations of a certain look or a certain um, limit in, uh, in your knowledge and what you're supposed to talk about in baseball, right? How we are supposed to be only the pretty interviewers who give you the human interest story, but who cannot break down a swing or a pitch. And that for me was very difficult to fight against that image. And it was very important for me. So I had some angels along the way, people who believed in me. And in the beginning, it was this gentleman named Mario Fraticelli, who at the time was working for Univision and who needed a woman. He wanted to include a, a, a woman's voice in the coverage that he was doing at the time with soccer and baseball. And he started including me as a writer. And then he goes on to ESPN and brings me over. And that's exactly how the pattern. So I met Mario when I was a freelancer, right? And just, you know, we met along in, in the business. It's very small. So, you know, you end up in the same places. And Mario opened the doors for me at Univision and also opened the, door, the doors for me at ESPN. And he brought me in 12 years ago to ESPN. And from then on, I knew that the moment that the door opened, that that's all I needed that I needed to prove what I could do. And I needed to just kind of figure out a different way of following a path that maybe was not forced by anyone else. And I, it was very, very, very difficult because no one did what I did. You know, there was no other bilingual Latina who wanted to cover national baseball and who also wanted to talk about pitching and hitting and who wasn't only about the human interest story. The human interest story is wonderful. But when we limit women, you know, to only one topic, that's where we fail. So, you know, I, I want to tell you the human interest story of the wonderful story of Nestor Cortez Jr. getting to the United States. But I also want to break down Nestor Cortez's pitches, pitches. And you have to allow me to do both mm -hmm. because I am capable of doing both. And the moment when they limit you to only, well, she can only talk about the human side because she cannot talk about baseball. I set out to change that. 
And, and I feel that, you know, we're getting there. <laughs> we're starting to accomplish it. And, it. and it's pretty cool to see. But definitely in the beginning, it took those women, you know, who paved. You know, and I kind of lost my way here, Doug. I'm sorry. I kind of went all over the place. No, but, awesome. you know, but just these women who, you know, who proved to people that it wasn't only about telling the human interest story, that you can also, you know, break down pitches and break down hitting. And, and, and that was just inspirational to me. Yeah, and and I think you know it's when you look back you know I, or at least from my point of view I look back I'm like well of course you know you have a sport that has such a tremendous Latin influence you have a bilingual yeah. reporter you know it's just like of course right but it hasn't been anywhere near not- that obvious and that clear and that clean yeah. right and and so what I'm curious about I'm trying to phrase this in a in a clear way but you know I'm, what I'm really interested also in on this other side of it is you know, you bring in representation, right? Not yep. only because the capabilities you bring that should be obvious but are not on all the walls due to gender and so many other factors, identity, but you also freed the opportunity for others. And it wasn't just other okay. journalists. It was also the players. So I, I'm curious if you can speak to the fact that the liberation of the players that aren't necessarily bilingual speak Spanish and are concerned about talking to the press can look around and don't feel comf- comfortable or confident that their words are going to be taken organically and therefore they're trapped in a certain way. What has yeah. it been like to have all the access and then watch that trust waterfall come your way? Because, you know, I watched your interview with Ronald Acuna Jr. about <laughs> when, after he first got hurt and, you know, yeah. he's talking about crying every day and just like the openness that you're mm. able to extract from Thank these players. You. You know, so what is what has it been like to watch that transition and the significance of not only you creating representation, but the players seeing it in you? Well, thank you, Doug. I, I truly appreciate your kind words. I think the number one thing that started happening happened, you know, during my tenure covering baseball. You know, the fact that that the union and Carlos Beltran and other players got together to to expressed the necessity to have translators in the clubhouse and how important it was for those players to be able to express themselves. Um, given situations like what happened with Michael Pineda and the, and the pine tar incident, bringing that to light. It wasn't that those situations didn't happen before, right? It's just that that what happened in a very public Yankees Red Sox at Fenway Park. So it got a lot of attention and it really um, put that need out there, right? That these guys were not being heard. They were not being able to express themselves in the way they could. And it's been fantastic to first see that transition, to first see the players having that tool inside the clubhouse, because Doug, I cannot tell you my, um, you know, this is, this is almost, this is 17 years for me covering baseball. And I have to say that I cannot count in the first decade of my career, how many translations I did for journalists, how many times I served as the translator for a team for major league baseball or for a particular player who wanted to speak to a journalist. I did that endlessly all the time. It happened with every team. This is an This is not, let me be very clear. This is not an accusation in any individual team. This happened with every single team. The ability was not there for these players to talk. And all of us, the few um, bilingual journalists out there took it upon ourselves to actually be a voice for these guys. So then when it is included in the CBA and they institute the use of translators in the clubhouse and an official appointed person, that really was wonderful to see because all of a sudden everyone had the tools. And it's funny because I've had people reach out to me to be like, oh, aren't you disappointed? Because almost your competitive advantage 
because a journalist went away, <laughs> you know, because they're like, you had this advantage. And I said, absolutely not. I, I couldn't care less about this because now all these guys can express themselves. And I'm one person, right? In Major League Baseball, one third of Major League Baseball players are of Latin American heritage. So, you know, these guys have, a lot of them feel a lot more comfortable speaking in Spanish. Even me, Doug, like, you know, like, obviously I'm so excited to do this podcast. I'm, you know, it is an honor to be on with you. So I get a little bit nervous because I want to say everything right, which means I would rather be doing this podcast in Spanish because Spanish is my native language to this day. Like it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I, I don't do all right in English. I most of the time do all right, but my native language, if I really want to tell you how I feel about Roberto Clemente, I would rather tell you in Spanish. And I feel that Ichiro Suzuki said it to me the best. I have a wonderful close relationship with Ichiro and we talk all the time without his translator. And one day I'm in Miami and I said, I want to do a takeout piece for you on ESPN, the magazine. And he brought over his translator. And I remember looking at him and going, why is Alan here? It's, it's not, it's you and me. We, we talk in English for hours. What is happening? He said, I believe that you really want to hear what I truly think about this topic. And my first language is Japanese. And, yeah. and that's where it is. It has nothing to do with, it has to do with the comfort of you expressing yourself in a language that does not come. You know, I curse in Spanish. I make <laughs> shopping lists in Spanish, right? Those are the things because that's my native language. So those are the guys. That, and then now to see them flourish and to get them to tell their stories. And then, of course, I benefit from these kids that I saw from the beginning. One of the rules that I have, Doug, is the first day of spring training when they bring all the call-ups in every single ballpark that I am in, I go introduce myself to every single one of the Hispanic young kids who just got called up, who got to see. And just because you want them to see a familiar face, you want them to feel comfortable, you want them to believe that they belong. You know, these kids don't feel like they belong. All, the, all these people are speaking in a language that they do not understand. They have zero schooling, which is a, a horrible problem that we have in Latin America. When we target a player for baseball, basically past 13 years old, they, they, they have a very diminished education and it's all about baseball. So these kids with very limited mental capabilities because of their lack of education, right, are expected to speak an entirely different language. And, and, and it's, it's daunting and it's, and it's embarrassing to them and they feel out of place. So. It was my goal to every time make them feel like they belong. And I think that's that's what we do. When we show up, when you show up as a black man, when I show up as a Latina woman, it tells these guys that we belong. For a very long time, uh, Major League Baseball journalism had no people that looked like you or me. So, so then that's why it matters. Because these guys then don't feel like this is the sport of the man, you know, or like this thing. And, and we are serving a purpose and we are just commodities, which... We know they still feel that way, but we actually are part of the success of Major League Baseball. We can be the face of Major League Baseball. Ronald Acuna has zero doubt that he can be the face of Major League Baseball. I can guarantee you that. He couldn't care less if his English is not great. He doesn't because they have that confidence that they belong. And I like to think that representation does that. Yeah, well, it's funny. My, my wife has a, a title for me. She calls me uh, Puerto Rico, Doug. That's my alter <laughs> ego. And uh, apparently I am not nuanced and I talk, I cut through the chase. I don't have all the, the words to be as subtle. 
So uh, she's like, man, I'm, you're cursing people out in Spanish. Like, what's happening here? So, uh, I mean, I get I went, it. I want to meet Puerto Rico dog. I haven't met Puerto Rico dog. <laughs> well, I, I went to visit Amaury Telemaco in the Dominican. Oh, and wow. um, and we stayed at a at like a resort, and it was a nightmare checking in. They messed up our room three times, and actually oh. we got upgraded to this presidential suite because of it. So no complaints there. But then we went to the pool, and we kept getting pitched on all these like timeshares. And I and I said, and I and finally I, I I could feel the the I said I got to do this in Spanish, right? Yeah. And I said, and I started off by. Déjame explicar algo. That's how I started. <laughs> Let me explain. Okay. <laughs> and then it went from there. It's like, you know, we're only here for the next day. I don't want to talk to you every day. I don't, you know. So I'm like, I don't know how to say it any other way. So, uh, I, 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 you know, I, and so, and I remember playing in winter ball. Yeah. I chose, you know, I learned a lot of Spanish from seventh grade to 12th grade. We had Spanish every year. So I was pretty good when I got into baseball and I used to help the Spanish-speaking players with a lot of stuff, healthcare and all these things. So I remember... Which is an important thing, please, Doug. That's another... I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. That's yeah. another thing that I want to stress. I cannot tell you how many health forms or MLB forms I help yeah. players fill out. That's very yeah. important. To, yeah, please continue. Yes. No, yeah. and, I, and, and I remember yeah. when I played in Puerto Rico, I, I saw like this is a free education. So I chose ne not to live in the English-speaking speaking resorts. And I lived in Cabo Rojo and like a cabana you know and i was like walking to the you know and i just talked spanish all day long until i was literally dreaming in spanish and that's when i knew i was like i'm getting pretty far in this <laughs> and so but but i remember like one of the players who was you know from the mainland u.s i think he, i want to say he got in a car accident or got a ticket he had to go to court and he was like you don't know what to do right and i was like well look obviously there's many english speakers here that's part of the requirement but now you know just a little bit how it feels yes. when players are coming from abroad other countries and thrust in the United States and America, and they're just trying to speak English, and you know they're afraid of a lot of things, understandably. So I think that little taste, even though they can stay at you know get HBO at the at Rincon, there's still like the feeling of like wait a minute, like I'm not this majority language as as the primary, and uh, you know, and so one thing I think about directly, you mentioned Roberto Clemente, and yeah. in in the I forgot which book it was in, uh, it was about ten years ago, and the the thing that stuck struck me is that, first of all, Clemente was like, I'm speaking my mind, period. Like, yes. he took every day, he's like, he called out every injustice, never got off it, was relentless about it. But he, he would speak in English, and they would translate in the newspaper phonetically. Yes. Like, you know, broken English, What they would phonetically, almost like we are trying to embarrass this guy, right? And, and I thought that was so, and he's like, and he would say, like, I don't care. But I'm going to get this point across. You may not want to hear it. And, uh, and I thought it was, you know, so that, you know, going back to the 70s and then thinking about the significance of where we are today and how important it is, like just just something that seems so basic, but you can't command the language as well. And you're not putting them in an environment where 33% of these players are speaking Spanish and not giving them voices like Barley Rivera and others. Uh, it's it's but such I think, a loss. I, I think it's important for us to know too, and, and you spoke to it there because you immersed yourself in Puerto Rico and try to do the culture and try to do the language. And I do believe that players try to do the same. So, so the point that we're doing is not, I'm not here saying that if, you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is a perfect example of how hard he has worked in his English and he's getting close to that point where he's doing full interviews in English. And I'm not saying that players should not attempt to speak English. I do think that it would benefit them 
I believe that it really is a great skill to have for them to be able to communicate with all their teammates and all their coaches. And actually, the reason why I want them to, to, to learn English is for them because it's a benefit for their lives. But there are certain limitations that, that we constantly do not see in front of us. And it is that limit of education that a lot of these kids have. And there are, there are these expectations. I mean, I am 46 years old. And, and, and for me, I've been studying Japanese for quite a few years and I am terrible at it. I suck at it. And I have a gift for language. I have a gift. And, it's, and I am an educated person with a master's degree. And it's taken me years to try to get basic Japanese words. So we are expecting a 17-year-old, 18-year-old that has a third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade education to learn an entirely different language and be able to be conversant in it. And not only that, not only be conversant and express your thoughts, but also answer difficult stuff, you know, and answer difficult questions that have to do with struggling and with embarrassment and with not performing when you're an alpha male who's an elite athlete and you're going to feel that I'm questioning who you are as a person because that's how every player feels. If I ask you about that pitch that you missed or about that swing that you missed, Doug, you literally are thinking at one time, why is this woman questioning why I don't belong in the major leagues? And that's really not what we're doing. But it is the emotion of the moment, right? And we're asking that player to express themselves perfectly in a language that they did not grow up speaking. It's just unfair. So, so let's give him a little room. Not everyone is Luis Severino and Juan Soto who taught themselves and who are fantastic in it. Some of them, it takes them a little longer, you know, and it's like, let's give him a chance. And, but, but in the meantime, let's give him some tools, right. To, to help him communicate with the rest of the media. And, and that's what we try to do. Well, I, I remember vividly Carlos Correa's story, right? I mean, he, yes. his dad, his dad just kept, kept taking jobs. I mean, man never slept, but he kept taking jobs so that, you know, so he one could day, have his son, yeah. And Carlos was like very, you know, mature to say, hey, I, and, and in the position to do so, say, I want to learn English. I want to, when I get yeah. there, I want to be able to command this. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and that's, uh, like you said, we have to see that as, you know, it's a rare opportunity because it's part of privilege, right? Educational yeah. privilege and, and opportunities to be able to say, well, yeah, I mean, but, you know, when you're in this sort of dominant culture, male dominant culture, English speaker, it's easy to kind of say to brush it off and not look at all the, the, the layers to it. So I definitely appreciate that. And then speaking of which, like, you know, yeah. uh, uh, I'm curious on your thoughts, uh, Fernando Tatis, you know, yeah. coming into this interview, I, I gave a little bit of a monologue about it and just free thoughts about it. And I guess, you know, looking at this, you know, and, and look, I know there's things we don't know. So, I, you know, without yeah. jumping way ahead of it, but the idea for me, I was crestfallen. I was crestfallen because I saw an ambassador, I saw a transformational figure that was, was doing things, you know, on and off the field in ways just because of who he was, right? This, this player that comes on the scene is so talented and charismatic and, and engaging and doing things that, you know, you know, not playing the game, quote, the right way, but bringing a culture that I, that I embraced and learned to embrace directly when I was playing two years in Puerto Rico, for example, just celebratory. And that that celebratory spirit, and then watching veteran players be able to say like he's good for the game, he's you know he's the most interesting, exciting, all these things that if you go back twenty years would have been rejected completely, right? But he he kind of was able to come at that time and be able to give that, 
And then you watch veteran players, experienced players, advocate for younger players in collective bargaining, which was unheard of. Unheard of. In in the 70s, 80s, they were like, pay your dues. That's all you're going to make right now. And when you get to my position, it was not this, hey, these are great players contributing now and they're underpaid. We need a pre-arbitration pool. We need, And I think Tatis Jr. was centered around that. And um, so I guess, you know, it's a lot to put on anybody, let alone a, a young player. So I'll start by saying that. But I just, that was the emotion that I felt initially about, wow, you know, this this is a figure that was making such change by just being having the room to be yourself. That was something you couldn't even say as we go back to Roberto Clemente, right? Just yeah. go back to that. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what you felt about that and, you know, what your feelings were about hearing that news. Doug, I feel that you summarized it quite well there because it was this dichotomy. And, and, and I'll speak to the first one first, which is simply described as one player said it in Spanish, tristeza, which is sadness. And I feel like that was the number one thing that I felt. And it came exactly from what you said, from that belief that, you know, we have not seen a young, a 23-year-old player with that set of skills and that much talent being called by both young players and veteran players, the best in the game, um, and being appreciated for not only his skills on the field, but also for his style and his style and his uh, charisma and, and all these things happening. So then all of a sudden when he, because we idolize these kids and they're kids when they invariably fail you because he's a human being, right. And, and these are things that are going to happen, then you're crushed. And, and I feel like that's what talking to so many players the last couple of days about it. That's what they felt. They just felt so sad because they felt like he had a chance to be, you know, kind of, you know, what we haven't seen from a Latino player since A-Rod, probably, right, in terms of representing the league and having this space, which we're seeing right now, thankfully, and also Julio Rodriguez, right, mm -hmm. that you're hoping that they become this perfect, and I know this is going to sound kind of curious, but it's almost like a lot of the Latin players very frequently don't feel like they belong in the United States because of their style of play being so different and at times so, you know, seen as controversial because of not following the quote unquote unwritten rules, which we dislike that phrase so much, but I will put it, I'll put it there. So constantly, you know, 99% of the Latin players that I speak to never feel like they quite belong in baseball. And then eventually there are these transformational figures that cross that line and that kind of belong on both sides of the aisle, that they are kind of, you know, everyone likes you that, you know, someone who's in their 70s, like my dad would, you know, loves that player and a eight year old also loves that player. And the eight year old is from Iowa and the 75 year old is from Puerto Rico, right? Like those are the, those kind of players. And there's such few that make it, that cross that line, that, that, you know, whatever that divide is in so many aspects, they cross it. And I think a lot of them believe that Fernando Tatis Jr. would be able to do it, you know, without being tied to PEDs. And, and now this happened and it really is just this sadness. And, and I've heard it from everybody disappointed and sad without knowing really the, the specifics of the suspension and what really happened, right? And of course, a lot of the players and Doug, this is the part where, where you can speak to, it's precisely what you said about the collective bargaining agreement and them having fought so much for young players to make their money earlier, right? In a sport that 
your average lifespan is so short, right? When you're early 30s, you're pretty much done. And, and, and you know, you need to make your money early. The player is advocating. But the other part is how it has played out in the media and how it continues to play out in the media. And I'm not saying, obviously, as a member of the media, I'm not attacking the media. What I mean is the way that A.J. Preller has out, been so outspoken in the relationship and the breach of trust that has happened with a player. And we're not used to seeing that. And a lot of the players are greatly concerned about seeing things like the leak of contract information, like it happened with Aaron Judge and it happened with Juan Soto. And now having GMs openly kind of crossing the thin blue line, right, of, of we're still the same team and, and pretty much taking sides. And, and it has been seen very negatively uh, across baseball, a lot of the A.J. Preller comments. Some players believe that he deserves them, right? Let's be very clear. But some other players have said, no matter if A.J. Preller thought that, maybe those words should not have been out there uh, in the media. Yeah, and, and once again, it, it speaks to what we've been talking about earlier with representation, right? That perspective, you know, Fernando Tatis's journey and yes. where he's come from uh, and decisions he's made, but also just the fact that, you know, he, that is that is a lot to put on anyone, right? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot to put on. And, and you know, you don't know what internally people are dealing with with respect to, yeah. Uh, you know, carrying that burden of being, uh, you know, being the face, quote unquote. I mean, we saw that uh, very deeply in the Olympics with Simone Biles and uh, and I'm sorry, I can't think of her, Michaela the skier, right? Schifrin, right? Um, yeah, Michaela Schifrin, yeah. Yeah, Schifrin, yeah. She, you know, the, the fact that you're the face and all of a sudden uh, there's so much to that. And, and that's without the, the money and the expectations from that standpoint of like guaranteed contracts and all these other yes. things, which, um, so yeah, incredible um how that that lesson is and and so yeah i mean i guess curious what you think well what will be next i guess is it that you know well Well, i was reading i i think that right now and we have a recency bias and we can be very reactive right and i think one of the one of the number one things that i have seen is the great disappointment that there is and the fact that we are not going to see soto machado tatis Mm. in the wbc right, yeah. or in the playoffs or in, or in the World Baseball Classic where the Dominican Republic's team is poised to be a juggernaut. I mean, to get through, you know, it, 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 Luis Castillo and Sandy Alcantara, I mean, come on. Like, it's mm-hmm. just not even, like, it's just not even fair. And we, do, we, we just started. I mean, and then we'll go to the end with Emmanuel Classe and Gregory Soto. I mean, I mean, this is just the, the two ends of, of the pitching that the Dominican has, and we haven't even gotten to position players. There's a lot of reaction to Tatis has failed us, right? And whether you believe that or not, I will leave that to the listener, right? Like that is not my, it is not my place to tell anyone how to feel, right? About how they feel about the news. But you said it, Doug, what a responsibility to carry. What a level of, what a level of expectation we put in our athletes that are human beings and not really you know, this mythical figures that cannot fail. So, you know, I'm not, you know, I have no idea what happened to Fernando Tatis Jr., whether, you know, he consumed the substance or not. I have no idea what happened there. But I do know that at times we have to be kinder in our, in our absolutes and, uh, and be careful when we just utter absolutes all the time. And um, I don't know that, you know, I heard some comparisons whether Tatis Jr. was going to become Ryan Braun and that his, you know, maybe he was never going to be further recognized as the great player he is. And I think we're being too soon. And this is a 23-year-old 
who has a chance to redeem himself and to, and the only way that you do it, Doug, and no one knows this more than you is on the field. Mm. That's the only thing that we can see is Tatis Jr. next year with the San Diego Padres performing on the field. And then after that, maybe we can talk. Well, I just want to look ahead in our final thoughts about like uh, journalism and your journey. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, what do you hope for next? Like, what would you like to see next uh, that the game addresses and uh, that, you know, you've done so much work and, you know, hurricanes in Puerto Rico, you know, just helping your, your homeland and, uh, and, and spoken that the voice of the voiceless in so many respects, uh, what, what would you like to see next as, as where baseball can take us? I think that two aspects, and this is where you're going to get the baseball nerd in me to a lot of people out there, two aspects that are very, very dear to my heart and things that really need to change is the way that we deal with the minor leagues and the way that it relates to major league baseball and, um, and the environment that we're creating for these athletes and how we need to foster a better, better environment and, and truly allow these guys to have living wages and have real lives in order to support the game that we all love because the superstars are fantastic. Count the superstars in each roster. You need the other 20-somethings and uh, 20-something players and all of those come from that environment. And it's very important that we need to do a better job of supporting the minor league system and we need to do a better job of developing international players, whether that is going to be with an international draft well, how is it that we're going to protect young players? Because what is happening in Latin America is a travesty with uh, 12, 13 year olds that are already getting Tommy Johns that are being discovered with steroids that are being guaranteed contracts when, when you're not even of age to have those discussions. And, and we need to be better policemen of our game. And, and I know that people are like, well, you know, I just want to enjoy my, my beer and watch the game. Of course we do. Like it's, it's, it is absolutely essential that you get to do that too. <laughs> like, like it's okay to not have to think about those serious thoughts about the game all the time. But the game that you see in front of you today, you know, has this very dark background that we need to, you know, that is sustained and, and that we need to help these kids out. And, and you know, the, a lot of these young kids, the Ronald Acuna juniors of, of the world come out of these backgrounds and, and it's important, you know, and I want to see more of the Latin players speak out about that, you know, and, and seeing Miguel Cabrera and Albert Pujols already addressing those issues. So I think that dealing with the minor leagues is very, very important, Doug, and we need to. And, and the rule changes are exciting, too. So that one, let's, let's throw a positive one. I'm, I'm very excited. Minus robo-umpires, bring all the rule changes. I'm all for it. So that's, uh, that's all fun. But we need to have a better system in the minor leagues to help our players. That really is, you know, and, and, and it's essential to do that. And, um, and we need to deal, whether it's an international draft or not, uh, a better way to deal with international players and the way they get here. Well, <laughs> and always like such a dark, sad note. Maybe we need to fix the ball so we can have 75 home runs <laughs> all the time. <laughs> well, well, on a positive note, I can ask you uh, your, your favorite salsero. Like, you, have, you have a favorite Oh cantante. my God. You You're going to a... get me in trouble for saying that, but I think I'm going to go to the Queen of Soul yeah, I mean, Celia, I'm going to go with two, my two ladies, La Lupe and Celia Cruz. And I feel right. like I need to give my Cuban ladies a little love. So yeah. if I have to go to a little old school salsa, just give yeah, me a little went, Celia. Give school. me a little Our, Celia Cruz anytime. All right, give me a little, <laughs> give me a little new school. Or like I was there in the 90s. So I, I mean, I had oh, like, so, ju- you, I had like so, ju- you, so yeah. maybe you did a little Eddie Santiago. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was, I, I, it was Johnny Rivera. I love Johnny Rivera. Oh, yeah. Well, Johnny, so, oh, Jerry Rivera was fantastic. He was, no, this is Johnny. They, Johnny, oh, Johnny. Oh, Johnny. So this is earlier because Jerry's a little later. Yeah, Johnny Rivera. I love Johnny. And uh, yeah, Déjame Intentarlo. That was the. Uh, How about uh, Gilberto Santa Rosa? Yeah, yeah. Classic, yeah. classic. Um, there was, uh, I mean, I remember Ray Ruiz was big. Oh, uh, yeah. The okay. Vila Luna Negra. That was the song he had. I mean, I was into it. Look at you bringing yeah, a little old school stuff. I like it. Yeah, I like the classics. And uh, that's where I learned Mark Anthony and all these cats. But yeah, I think Johnny's the guy, man. He's, I have yeah, all his that's stuff. That's your favorite? Well, Tony Vega. Tony Vega was one. I, I'll always remember Jose Valentin. Yeah, Hector Lavo, the voice. Yes, of course. Okay. Well, the cantante, right? So cantante. I always think of, um, I always remember Tony uh, Valentin. Uh, yes. sitting next to the boombox during the playoffs and playing Aparentamente with Tony Vega. And he, oh was, my God. he was, he was, he was doing the whole, like uh, there's out of the B section and he <laughs> word for word, he was in there like, and I was like, That's well, a I have a song. good one for you, Doug. Um, obviously a lot of our favorite, you know, people are like, these people are nerding out with old salsa, but this is a, this is a good one. I want you to look out in the next Yankee game and you'll see this uh, pretty often. I don't know if he has it right now, but, Glaber Torres, who is only 25 years old, as you know, you know, yeah. in his mid-20s right now, is a massive old salsa fan like oh. a lot of Venezuelans do. And for a long time had some Celia Cruz, some Hector Davo, and like some okay. really classic salsa in his song. Uh. And of course, one of our favorite bands, El Gran Combo. So oh, that, yeah, of course, yeah. El Gran Combo de Puerto Rico. If I don't mention El Gran Combo de Puerto Rico, I yeah, will you gotta never go that. back. That, wait, is that <laughs> Nadia Sabe lo que tienes hasta Look que lo you, pierdes? Hasta yeah. que lo pierdes. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, oh man, I love uh, two years of music. I I still collect all this, and I, oh, I when know. we won the championship in Mayagos, we were on stage with like uh, Puerto Rican power, Jaylene Sintron. Oh, Jaylene Sintron, what a dancer! My goodness, and um, <laughs> yeah, we we had a blast. But I I always look fondly. I mean, Mark Anthony. I've been to a bunch of concerts, and I, I met I met him backstage, and I I felt honored because I said, okay, in the the album cover, Toro a tu, su tiempo. The yellow yeah. one. Well, um, you're holding something in your hand in the photo. Like, what is that? Do you, I don't know if you remember that. Do you, do you know what it is? That'd be a good trivia question. What is Mark Anthony holding in his hand behind his back on the total? And he has like a yellowish, right? Like, yeah, it's like yeah, a yellowish yeah. cover. I yeah. don't know. What I'm is it? Como ella. You know, uh, tan dulce, tan, tan bella. I love that. I love that. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, or uh, Vieja Mesa. Yes. Yeah, okay. So, so um, what is he He's holding an apple. So he's holding an apple. So I asked him, well, why are you holding an apple? And he said, well, I wanted, you know, to be confident that one day I'm going to have the big apple in the palm of my hand. And so oh. I wanted this moment. So Look at um, this. You told me yeah. something. I love yeah, it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he was great. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, Marley, we, I could talk to you forever and ever. Oh, and now I know we need, We're going to do I, another I, hour of, like, just salsa music. <laughs> i tell it. you. Well, now I know we need to talk some more salsa the next, at the next Anytime. game. But, uh but uh, it's been we'll a pleasure. We'll bring Gleyber Torres on. We'll do like the, the, the oh, man. You know, we, we bring the old school. He brings the new school. It'll be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All those cats like Victor And we bring Manuel. Charlie Montoyo. Charlie Montoyo, every time he would come to New York, obviously no longer since he has been fired. But um, every time he would come to New York, he would go to an old salsa music store in the Bronx and go oh, pick yes. up some, yeah, some old school music every single uh, time the Blue Jays were in town. So... I got to take you there. Yeah. Well, I, well I, I'll tell you a quick story before we go on. Uh, Tito Rojas. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Fiesta Patronal was in. Um, in what town? Well, I won't tell you where it was because he was like, 
Hola, la gente de Añasco. Como esta? And they were like, estás en San Sebastián. Gente de Añasco. He did the wrong time. <laughs> what an idiot. My uh, family, my family is de Cuamo. They're from yeah. Cuamo. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know who's yeah. from Cuamo? Uh, Domingo Herman's wife. Victor Caratini, isn't he? Isn't Caratini from Victor Caratini is from Cuamo. And so yeah. is, uh, so is, well, Correa's from Santa Isabel. Even though he says Caguas, he's from Santa Isabel. He's from right there, too. Willie, Willie Rosario is from Cuamo. Yes. I mean, I mean, I I drove the whole country. I mean, I. So you knew it, yeah. I, I mean, Un placer, and take care of yourself, and I'll see you soon. Okay, thank you, my friend. Thanks, Tim. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Well, it's time for our exciting, at least for the audience, portion of our show. Uh, Jason Stark and I have been flopping around like fish for many months now in the trivia portion of our show. And I'm looking to write the ship. Uh, this time, Jason Stark being on vacation. I, I don't blame him. This question would have blew him out of the water. So if I can get this, this will be a moment of glory. I think we'll create a monument park in Starkville, and I want to be the first face on a plaque if I get this one right. So 
Uh, that's what I'm shooting for. We have a whole, we've built a whole lot of things at Starkville and they never get built. So, um, but you know, we're not afraid to start a GoFundMe for that and, uh, we'll make sure it's put to good use. Uh, but right now we have Jim Hawkins joining us who asked a wonderful question for this week's trivia and Jim, uh, a Phillies fan at heart. Uh, but I'll let him, uh, talk about how that came about and, uh, what's your story. So Jim, welcome. Let's go. So what's uh what's the Phillies uh what was the first connection to Philadelphia Phillies baseball that made you a lifelong fan? Uh I mean I, I really started to um become a huge fan in '93. Uh I was only seven years old at the time. Uh and you know, that team went from worst to first and the exciting World Series and not the end of the World Series, but that whole season in general. Um the the following year, my aunt, who's my godmother, got me season tickets for the uh, the Sunday package, and we've been going to Sunday games pretty much ever since. So that's kind of how it all got started, and I became a bigger fan as I got older, and um, you know, that's that. Yeah, now, now who's your favorite player right now, 2022? Uh, current or just of all time? Current, yeah, just current player. Bryce Harper. But all time, it's yeah. yeah, Chase is phenomenal. Um, yeah, I happened to play with him for a heartbeat uh, last couple of years of my career, and I was able to give him a speech that Mike Morgan gave me when I got sent down to say, you know, this is your slot, this will be your time, you know, and it was nice to pass on that wisdom that helped me when I got sent out from Cubs spring training, and Chase obviously had a phenomenal career. Uh, well, that's great, Jim. I, you know, I appreciate you sharing those in the Philly history. So uh, so I'm going to, you know, dust off and step into the batter's box here for a trivia. And uh, I'm going to let you fire the, the best fastball you got at me, and let's see what happens. All right, so uh, here it goes. Um, so Ron Reed, who last week got inducted in the Phillies Wall of Fame, is one of four players all time with 225 career starts and 500 appearances uh, in relief. Hmm. Other three players. One of four. Two twenty-five starts, five hundred relief. Yes, uh, that's pretty incredible. And I'm glad you gave me that because I would have never gotten Ron Reed. And the thing is, with Ron, I, I, you know, of course, I was a Phillies fan myself, and I remember playing Stratomatic baseball, where unfortunately Ron Reed blew a save in the world's in my little Stratomatic World Series in our basement. And I did have to crumple his card up. And that was the only time I remember being so rageful at Stratomatic that Ron Reed paid the price. And oh, and by the way, he had a grape juice stain on him and he had teeth mark from our dog. So Ron Reed was a warrior in Stratomatic. And, um, but, you know, I didn't realize that he was that long of a starter. That's the thing that threw me off. I was like, wow, he, I thought of him as a perennial reliever, but that is amazing. 225 starts is like 30 plus starts a year for seven years. That's a long time. Um, so trying to think of who those are, I, I kind of go right to the modern era because there, I know I was in the period of a lot of crossover, you know, Trevor Hoffman's of the world, people who, you know, I think of lo- relievers that got a lot of appearances like Mariano Rivera, who started as a reliever, a starter, and then ended up moving into relief. Uh, but I'm thinking some of those guys like Trevor Hoffman, I don't think they had that many starts. That's too long. Rivera was a starter for like a year. So, so then I move on to a couple things. Now, one thing I might be able to consider is um, I remember talking to someone I work with at Marquee Sports talk about how he had some number I don't remember the numbers but he was a reliever and a starter 
and it was it was in rare air. So the first people that come to mind, you don't have to shake your head yes or no yet. I'm going to try to work this out. But I, of course, what comes to mind in my time is a guy like John Smoltz. Okay, he, a dominant starter, Hall of Famer, and then he became this ridiculous reliever. Now, 500 appearance, I have no idea, but uh, he was really good for a long time. Uh, I also think of someone I crossed over a little bit, might have faced him a handful of times, that's Dennis Eckersley, because he pitched, you know, we know about his uh, you know, World Series and his microscopic ERA, but he was a longtime starter for the Red Sox. And why did I know that? Uh, obviously, I know baseball, but I used to play wiffle, wiffle ball against Mark Anderson, who was always a Red Sox, and that sidearm delivery, I had to learn how to keep my front shoulder tucked on that one. So those are two. And the guy that I work with, was Ryan is Ryan Dempster because Dempster was you know starter a long time I went to the playoffs where he started and then he just became this reliever so but I'm really nervous about the 500 appearances that is a lot of appearances I don't 10 years at 50 or I mean I don't know that's that's a lot so um you know the other person people I think of just to ruin these three answers guy like Terry Mulholland you know I got my first hit off of him I don't want that to be the answer Maybe like a Joe Nathan. I don't know. So anyway, so I'm going to stop rambling in spirit of Jason Stark and get to the cut through the chase here. So I'm going to go with John Smoltz, Dennis Eckersley, and my colleague at Marquee Sports, Ryan Dempster. What do you think? Uh, you got one of them. Ah. Is it Dennis Eckersley is the right answer. He had 361 starts and 710 relief appearances. Woo, 710. Man, that's a lot. Um, let's see. My other short list was LaTroy Hawkins, people Raul Chavez, Doyle Alexander, Trevor Hoffman. I mentioned him. But anyway, I already know I got it wrong, so I'm loving to hear the other two that I did not get. Uh, you may have faced both these guys because they were kind of your era. Uh, but one is Darren Oliver. Whoa, yes, I did face him. Uh, Ama- Darren Oliver, that is amazing. How long did he pitch? 20 years. Yeah, wow. Okay, good one. Darren Oliver, uh-huh. 29 starts and 537 relief appearances. And then the other guy is Rick Honeycutt. Rick. Yeah, I did face him too. Yeah, amazing. You know, when I came up, I was a left, you know, left-handed pitcher specialist, pinch hitter guy. Um, uh, Darren Oliver, I remember the, you know, I always laughed about it. I said, man, you disrespected me because I was the eight-hole hitter, runner on second. The pitcher was on deck, and he pitched to me, and I had a base hit to right. I was like, see that? <laughs> I know I'm only hitting 203 right now, but come on, man. But, um, yeah, that, those are, that's a great question. And, yeah, those guys make a lot of sense. I forgot Rick Honeycutt. Yeah, he pitched, you know, forever, A's. Cardinals, um, yeah, that's a great Dodgers, I think, or is he? That's where he's coaching. But um, yeah, that's a great question, Jim. I mean, I, I I think of a lot of players, and that much more of a modern era question when you think about how starters and relievers started to transition into the period we're in now, where they're they're specialized, but they're all in some forms either relievers or long relievers. That starters are, you know, going five innings, and that's uh, that's victory. Um, excellent. Well, thanks so much, Jim, for the question. Uh, you know, we're back on our one game losing streak, but that's okay. That's okay. I felt like I gave it a valiant effort and, uh, Jason Stark should be proud. You got one out of three. So think of it as as that your batting average, you're a hall of famer, one out of three. Yep. 
that's that's a great way to think of it. That's almost like a dynasty, one for three. Well, as you know, whether we get this question right or wrong, our famous mayor, Tim McMaster, will always remind us about history by giving us the audio clip of one of the answers. I'm hoping it's the one I got right, but if not, we're all good. Let's listen to something from yesteryear. It absolutely is the one that you got right, but I went a different direction. Usually we use good highlights from these guys, but you know, it's only been a couple of weeks since we lost Vin Scully and we have Dennis Eckersley in a question. So I had to go the other way with, of course, Kirk Gibson's home run. And look who's coming up. All year long, they look to him to light the fire. And all year long, he answered the demands until he was physically unable to start tonight with two bad legs. The bad left hamstring and the swollen right knee. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Sacks waiting on deck, but the game right now is at the plate. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. I gave you the the extended cut. You still yeah, get goosebumps, right? Yeah. Oh, that's such a call. I mean, Vin. And then the, you let it breathe, you know, let it breathe, and then boom, just hits you with that. Uh, what a genius call. So, sorely missed, Vin Scully. Uh, rest in peace. Well, Jem, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and, uh, you know, keep cheering on your Phillies, see if they can get to the next level. But uh, encouraging so far how they've uh, put it together. All right, thanks for having me. All right, so that is going to do it for this week's episode of Starkville. And uh, solo flying was fine, but I missed my partner. So Jason, get back here next week from vacation, wherever you may be. You might be in Alaska, uh, and uh, that's fine. Come out, take sail, ride some of the glaciers, but let's get back to Starkville, okay? It's time to come back. Uh, but thanks for joining us in Starkville, and if you want to join us for trivia next week, you can get us your trivia question through Twitter, as we always can rely on, using the hashtag StarkvilleQS. But you can also tweet us, and I'm, I'm on Twitter all the time. Well, not all the time, but a lot. It's my favorite medium. So with Twitter, you can reach me, of course, at Doug Glanville, very boring, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. Hit me up there. And, of course, Jason Stark, who decided to throw a Y in his name for some reason. I asked why. Is there a Y? But there is, so we accept it. J-A-Y. S-O-N-S-T, Jason Stark. And you hit him, hit me, or email us any questions, and we're hoping to uh, get back on the saddle. I, I feel a winning streak that's going to come on, and then all of a sudden we're going to be in the playoffs because there's an extra wild card team, and Starkville's about to get it. So, yeah, check out the great writing at The Athletic, but most importantly, we have a deal, and that deal is $1 per month for six months. $1 per month. Can you imagine? That's six, $6. I mean, I could go out and I, I can't even get my double latte cold brew for $6. Not that I get that. That's really my wife, but that's all right. Um, but yeah, join The Athletic for that low rate. And you can log in or go online, I should say, athletic.com slash baseball show. 
athletic.com slash baseball show. So that's going to do it. We will talk to you again. We will see you again. And the dynamic duo will be reunited again like Hall and Oates on their reunion tour. Go check it out. But we'll talk to you next week on Starkville. Starkville.